Welcome to series four of the Bold Flavors podcast. I'm Timo, founder and CEO of Gusto, a B Corp certified company that loves food, data, people, technology, and the planet. We are currently delivering millions of meals every single week, and our vision is to be the most loved way to eat dinner. Our purpose is to have positive impact on people and the planet. And each week here on Bold Flavors, I'll be talking to top company founders, CEOs and business leaders about their journey so far, what makes them tick and how they achieve what they're achieving. Today, my guest is Shane, the CEO of Dutch-based payments company Molly. It's a fintech that has raised almost $1 billion and is on a mission to make payments as effortless as possible. Shane is Harvard educated and he has worked in the US, Switzerland, Argentina, the Netherlands and the UK. He's done almost 20 years in payments, so has a great vantage point across all of fintech. In this episode, Shane and I will talk about how he's finding the shift to CEO, how it is to work in a fintech and what innovation he sees in that space in the next 20 years. Shane, thank you so much for joining. Uh, you run a big fintech in Europe that has raised a ton of money. But before we speak about it, I would love to get to know you a bit better. Where did you actually grow up? Yeah, so I was born in America. I was born uh, outside, just outside of Chicago, which feels like a million years ago. So I, I led a typical... Midwestern American life until I was about 19. And then I went to study abroad a semester in Luxembourg at my university at the time. As one does. <laughs> yeah. Well, well, my university at the time had a long history of sending students to Luxembourg. Uh, wow. so, uh, so we had kind of a sister campus over there and they made it really easy and cost effective. And uh, it was a load of fun. So I got the travel bug and the sort of international business bug at that age, went back, finished school, worked for just two years out of school as an investment banker, and then moved to Switzerland, got an MBA. Uh, I got a job at an American company that sent me to their LATAM division. So I traveled, I traveled around South America. And then I said, I don't, I don't want to be in corporate finance. I want to try something new. I ended up in the, in the payments business. I had a finance background. I bought a lot of stuff online. It was a case of you know, I used the product, so to speak, and uh, I got a job with a Dutch company based in California. Wow. Um, yeah. So that Dutch company moved me from California to Amsterdam in 2008. Then they moved me to South America, Argentina. I set up the Latin American operation. And wow. then I got hired by a, a British competitor that was bought from a British bank by an American private equity firm. And I, and I moved to London. And that company went from a private company to a public British company, which was then bought by an American company. And then that company was bought by another American company. And then I left and went back to work for a Dutch business and moved back to Amsterdam. And that gets us to present day. Well, Amsterdam is a fantastic place. Okay. I mean, there's so much to unpick. <laughs> <laughs> You've seen so many countries. I, I rarely ever meet such international people. Talk me about like how payments over time have changed. Just really broadly, people listening in will not understand payments, but you've seen it for 20 years. Yeah, look, I think it's funny because I can tell you a hundred things that have changed, and I can probably actually tell you a hundred things that, that almost in some ways feel like they have it. You know, if you still look at points of friction and you know, if you still really poke at the underlying technology of a Visa or MasterCard or something like that, or banks, you know, it's 
it is still pretty deeply rooted in the same way the airline industry is in in tech mm-hmm. standards that have their beginnings you know when when swift was and iso messaging was was launched right so there's an element of old but there's so much new on top of it that a lot of that inefficiency has in some way been catered for with you know nice wrappers or very very clever things and i say probably the biggest change from when i started 18 years ago was because 18 years ago, people still bought stuff online, but it's just the the desktop environment versus the kind of fully flexible environment. I mean, so much activity has shifted to mm. on-the-go type payments. That that feels to me like the biggest change in-app payments, in-app subscription, TVs, Netflix, Disney Plus, and these, these types of services didn't really exist. There was also different business models too. I mean, they, Typically, what happened when I began is, you know, you played a video game online, you ordered a retail good or service, maybe did a bit of gambling, and there was a little bit of content. And it's mm. just, uh, there was no ride sharing or, you know, a lot of the today's models didn't exist back then. You know, it was quite fun in the early days to work with companies that at the time looked almost crazy in their thinking like an Uber or an Airbnb. Um, mm. But, you know, I've since turned into complete categories on their own yeah that's pretty pretty amazing uh reflecting on it and what what have you learned like spending so much time in such different countries like how has it shaped you as a person uh i mean i'd like to think that most businesses that are going to succeed long term need an element of global thinking it's a priority that gets more and more urgent for businesses that want to get up the growth curve and, and want to engineer long-term survival. I mean, the market leader in most categories you would describe as a global business, whether it's, I don't know, smartphone, uh, retail. So, you know, a lot of companies want to work with people that have some global purview. You know, probably the other thing you figure out is, is it's to drive to a global standard and adoption is super difficult because you're always going to have local country regulation, local country consumer preference, consumer preference is super hard to change. And just in general, the pride at trying to develop and nurture industries like mine locally, if you can, right? I mean, yes, there's, there's a, there are global players, but in almost every market, there's sort of a local domestic champion. You know, that's a dynamic that's, that's really continues to persist even after all this time you know it's more global than it was but it's still most of the share and what we do is held by local players and that changing that over time requires that you really motivate merchant behavior consumer behavior and you know you work in businesses that expand no makes makes sense and i mean completely unfair question but like any i mean you're you're living in amsterdam now like which which country was the most fun which was the hardest yeah i get i get that all the time i mean to be honest they're all amazing in their own way and at the stage of life and work that you're in i mean i really loved geneva as a graduate student i was outside all the time i had so much fun time and energy to you know to bike and ski i cycled miles and miles per week I have two small children now and my activities are different. I think Amsterdam is fantastic to work in these different places. It's always been a gift. I lived in San Francisco. I lived in Miami, actually. So they're all an amalgamation. I would say the only thing I didn't like in some respects is the the beauty about being in a place like Amsterdam or London. You get a lot of transient traffic. You get people passing through for business. You get lots of organic visitors. You You have money 2020 and all that. When you're living in Buenos Aires, 
that's a commitment for someone who wants to come and visit and yeah that's it's, a good uh, point yeah. you know it's i i typically had to get on a plane and fly if i wanted to see people and uh, so you can argue that that makes it a little bit more difficult to stay connected to old friends family etc and from a payments adoption perspective i mean you mentioned it's tracking gdp it's tracking online adoption and so on but i like which markets are the most advanced how does europe compare to china for example Yeah, I think there's lots of things that contribute to uptake in electronic payments. Pandemic, for one, you know, mm. nobody wants to touch, handle cash anymore. You feel really gross, even though nothing mm -hmm. has changed, right? So, uh, you know, I say everything's moved to electronic payments. Second regulation. You get a lot of countries that say, look, we need to push for adoption here. Cash is expensive. It promotes money laundering, whatever, right? So there's there's a big push organically from governments to increase that substitution. I would say, you know, uh, homogenous tech behavior helps too, right? If you, if it's an all Apple market or an all app market, or you have app, consumer apps with huge penetration, like you do in China with mm. kind of Alipay, that speeds up adoption. Uh, it, then you have economic growth and, uh, and then you have new categories. So all these things kind of amalgamate to what is the, the opportunity, which is why it's, it's so exciting because there's a lot of different ways in which growth can happen. But, you know, sometimes there's also temporary distortion. So the amount of people that were ordering food delivered to their house when they worked at home only when restaurants were shut is, of course, not the same opportunity when uh, the situation is dramatically different. For sure. But I mean, you must have such a diversified portfolio of customers, 130,000 I saw on a website. And so, yeah, I mean, wow. I mean, you see all the trends in real time. Yeah, yeah, sure. I mean, uh, we're, to be to be frank, you know, we're, thanks for calling us a big fintech, but you know, to me, we're we're still relatively small and early in our journey. So, you know, we don't have such a share of payments that you could generate a real time economic uh, indicator uh, that the government would consume in some meaningful way. But yeah, we do have a pretty diversified merchant base. You know, it's funny, like during the pandemic, every our company was like, whoo, we haven't got any travel. Whew, great, that's low risk. And now this year, we're like, man, I wish we had some more travel, right? So, uh, you know, we could get the the, the updraft from that. So uh, we're not big in travel and airline. And, you know, we have largely low risk kind of SMBs. But within that, we have a nice spread of, uh, you know, retail, digital services, et cetera. And a number of partners that are involved in whatever, restaurant booking software or kind of uh, holiday package software, et cetera. And and I mean, obviously, hugely special to be a unicorn and be one of the few unicorns in the world. But I mean, if you if you look around, there seem to be quite a few fintechs that are unicorns. And I mean, if you look at all the unicorns, you probably end up with 40, 50 percent in fintech. And is, is that because each country needs one or two of them or is it just such a large market? Yeah, look, it's it's tough for me to speak. Uh, intelligently about all aspects of investor psychology. I mean, clearly, it 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 got pretty hot in the last couple of years. I'm reading between the lines. Yep. Yeah, look, there are some very good reasons why people had reason to believe, have reason to believe that you know, fintech as a category still has explosive potential. If you mm. just look at share of banks versus new players, most people tend to think of enormously successful companies like Stripe as having, you know, huge share globally. And really it's it's still kind of low to medium single digits. So, you know, wow. in terms of total TAM and the TAM keeps expanding, it's it's interesting. Different types of badging yourself as a fintech, by the way, I think there are there are subcategories of fintech. I mean, I'm in payments. Payments has a long and demonstrated history. 
of generating profitable companies. So mm, great on point. one hand, I think, you know, there's obviously excitement about business models where you don't have to believe that X, Y company is going to be the first to make a profit or where the path of profit is super confusing, et cetera. We don't obsess about the public valuation attached to the company. It, in one way, is good to legitimize our business in front of That's people right. who may be saying, I'd like to work with a more established player because of the risk involved. You're handling my money. You know, I want to understand that you're well capitalized. It helps to accelerate the growth plan. Mm. Is that healthy? Okay, again, you can have a big argument about how healthy that is and how accelerated it should be. But in general, this is a business that can and should consume a lot of investment in making things better because Mm. online and other financial services are still finding their way into vast categories of untapped opportunity. No one is even doing anything super meaningful yet in B2B as measured by market share. Still, the number of offline-only kind of categories. Still, a lot of cash. I mean, mm. so you know, you tend to think of it in our socioeconomic or age cohort as like I don't even carry cash, but you know, uh, that's that's there's still a number of affluent consumers for whom that's their kind of key preference. So, yeah, you got all these tailwinds, right? How much tailwind can the, the investment community support at any one time? Great question. No one knows, or someone knows, sure, sure. smarter than I am, right? Well, uh, yeah, it's. I mean, it's it's hard to predict anything right now. And just just tell us a bit more about Molly. Like, how big is the company? Any data you can share? Yeah, I mean, obviously, as a payment company, we we think of our own business in terms of so-called net revenues instead of gross revenues. But you know, gross revenue is still the the main measure of how scale, you know, how much scale do we have as a company? You know, so. You know, we'll, we'll probably cross a bit more than uh, 200 million in gross revenues next year. You know, we're, we're still trying to decide what the right size and shape of the organization is in this environment. Today, we're about 750 people. A number of those people work on product and engineering. A number of those hires have been recent. So that, you know, that speaks to our future growth trajectory. You know, we have five countries that we're focused on now. There's a huge amount of opportunity available to us once we feel like we're doing a good job in those five countries. But for us, it's sort of UK, France, Netherlands, Belgium, and Germany. So it's about 80% of the e-commerce market in Western Europe. But there's still there's plenty more coverage for us to go after. Headquartered in Amsterdam, have a development office for engineers in Portugal that we set up last year and a large customer operations center in Maastricht. Otherwise, we're in, uh, in Paris, Ghent, uh, Ghent Munich. Uh, and London, I probably forgot one, but. And I mean, sorry, we're going slightly more detailed, but um, how does one decide whether to go into five countries or just deeper in one country? That must have been a really difficult or interesting discussion. Yeah, e-commerce in theory, uh, particularly in Europe, is meant to be fairly borderless in terms of, you know, your customers are capable of serving consumers from more than one geography. So Mm. we get a lot of pressure to make sure that we, don't lose pace with our customers. We started right. in a very small segment, but we've since moved up a bit more into the medium segment. Those businesses lend themselves typically to being more multi-market, maybe even have global aspirations. Mm-hmm. So there is definitely a pressure on us to look to follow those customers if we can and you know not, not have them outgrow us. However, you know, the business has done well historically by focusing on depth of product offer in the local market and you know how quickly can you get to depth over breadth is a classic investment question for us that we're thinking about as you know we start to make plans for next year here at the end of the summer Mm -hmm. 
Makes sense. And so you became CEO last year? I did. I joined in April of 2021. So the, the prior 10 years, I was a divisional CEO for and a, and a chief commercial officer for WorldPay. So mm -hmm. I'm a, a first-time CEO, although you know, I ran a business within a business, so not entirely different set of activities, but 15 months on the job so far. Been an interesting 15 months. And when I moved here, you still needed a letter to enter the country from the UK and restaurants were closed. So it feels like a long time ago for all of us, but it really wasn't for me. Wow. Yeah, no, that's fascinating. And like, what, what are the differences of running a divisional, you know, company versus now being the CEO, the shareholder stuff, the board stuff, what, what else? Yeah. I mean, great question. Obviously I went, I went, From a UK, you know, UK listed business to a US listed business back to a Dutch private company. <laughs> so there are some basic corporate governance and so, you know, public companies, I think, are very different. The US public companies and the three months shorter term focus, um, I think that's difficult, you know, when you're building a company. There's a reason mm -hmm. why many businesses wait till a certain size to go public, right? Because mm -hmm. the infrastructure required and the kind of maturity and predictability required is so much higher. Yeah, I think the single biggest difference is when you're in a divisional business structure, there's competition for resources between businesses. Uh, we have only one business, so mm. we have a different competition for resources is between sort of product areas or, or functional teams. But I think the thing I always struggled with the most is, you know, when you have kind of a more of a matrix model and you have a central technology function, which is trying to serve businesses mm. that have very different needs it can be challenging in ways that feel sort of unnecessarily complicated. But, you know, there are advantages too, which maybe one, one division has a tough time for a little while, the other one's doing well. You know, you kind of have different, you know, different overall paths to make the company plan. There are synergies between customer bases and a bit more uh, people portability for people that say, oh, I want to work in a different geography or I want to work uh, in a different, on a different product or so on and so forth. But um No, overall, I mean, it's uh, I voted with my feet, right? I mean, of course, it's uh, an intentional decision to get into a smaller, lean, you know, leaner, more nimble business. Um, but there are puts and takes everywhere you go. No, for sure, for sure, yeah. And I mean, congratulations on the job, um, belated. But um, and and so, what is it that only Shane can do? I.e., like, what are you really focused on? Because there's so much you could do. Yeah, I mean, look. I'd like to have my feet on the ground. You know, I, I don't think I'm uh, one of these potentially one of these product visionaries or leaders that has a skill set that no one else has. I think you know, if you're running a company, it's first and foremost, it's always very simple. It's how do you build a team? You know, I suppose only I can build the team that only I would build. But I've learned, I think, a lot over the years in, in global businesses about trying to make diverse groups of people come together in search of an outcome, a shared outcome. I think that's super important. You know, a lot of CEOs, first time or otherwise, are just navigating. The last two years has been a very different labor environment, uh, remote working, hybrid working. So I suppose it's just a little bit about how you stay adaptable and how you keep your finger on the pulse of what's going on and, you know, how you look at the delicate balance between employee engagement and business reality, right? Mm. Of course, I'd like everybody to be happy. But what might make everybody happy is, you know, sitting on the beach 30 hours away by plane, never meeting another person. And, you know, for us building a company, you can you can see where that holds us back in terms of getting people productive faster. Yeah, it makes sense. And I mean, working from home, has that been challenging in that respect? 
I think so. You know, it's it's undeniable that in certain circumstances for certain people, there's a productivity-based preference. But, you know, again, we've had a lot of net hiring and it's it's not that I don't trust people to get work done. I've just never seen humans that have to work together very closely. And in a payments business, like everyone touches customer outcomes. You know, mm. it's, there are no teams that work entirely autonomously uh, and everything is customer facing nearly, right? To a degree, right? Maybe you don't sit in front of the customer, but you work on a system the customers use or, you know, your site reliability engineer. Well, you know, a minute of downtime is is painful for an online business. They run for sure, all day. Yeah. So it's just, it's trying you know, one of my biggest assignments from the investors and the, and the board was try to keep the company culture robust and improving. So I, in that sense, I do feel it's a little bit challenging in the work from home space. So it's funny, we, you know, we have about 50% work from home, but it's not everybody staying home two to three days a week. It's some people here every day and mm. some people not here at all. And it tends to be the same people that fit into sure. those categories. And that, that for me has been like one of the most difficult challenges to figure out how to square up. Mm, makes makes sense. And how do you how do you you know what are the mechanisms you use? You you're doing like a weekly all hands or like what's happening? Because that's yeah. hard, right? Yeah. No. I mean, uh, there's. I think different teams have different cadences. Different jobs lend themselves more effectively to remote work. At least that's a theory, right? So it's sure, meant, yeah. meant to be that if you're writing code, it's a little bit different than if you're answering phones, which is a little bit different than if you're, you know, walking around uh, or having lots of cross-functional activities as part of your scope. So, you know, we do a lot of communication, like any modern company, we probably have too much uh, at too surface a level, you know, we've got Slack and Confluence and blogging and, uh, you know, all, all sorts of, uh, you know, G Suite tools and, um, We still have good old-fashioned email. You know, we did all hands, but we do them by Zoom. But people can come in person. So, I think we're still experimenting with it, right? I don't, I don't think we've nailed it. I think, you know, as people as life gets slowly more back to normal, and as um, people get more used to working with one another, hopefully, we just come to some more team norms that make that easier. But um, you know, I do encourage the team that I lead to make sure that there's some minimum expectation for what is the right time and space for having people, you know, turn up to get to know one another. And it's, I don't know, I don't necessarily know if it's about frequency, but it's definitely about quality and purpose. Mm, makes sense. Yeah. And, and talk me through the challenge of joining a founder led company. Uh, and then for you to take over as the CEO, I means the founder still the chief creative officer and like in the office every day, or like, how does that actually work? Yeah, that's, that's a good question. Uh, I mean, uh, most people think that I took over from the founder as the CEO, but I didn't actually. There was a CEO before me and he was actually in the role for about seven years. So our dynamic is a bit different because our, our founder is still a very large shareholder, but he's not actually formally an, an employee in the business. But yeah, chief creative officer might be a nice title. I, I would say Our business benefits a lot from good intuition about what customers would like and look and feel UX and design when you're trying to provide almost kind of a touchless customer service, I think is very important. And that was always one of his key strengths. So you know, we, we tend to continue to involve him in things that relate to that, as well as just heritage of the business, um, 
local community, you know, we want to be a meaningful player in, in the Dutch market. You know, that, that does mean that there's a, there's a long heritage and history. Some of our customers have been with us for a very long time. Some of our employees have been with us for a very long time. So yeah. And, and above all, you know, Adrian's obviously a very smart businessman. Um, this isn't the only company that he's credited with having founded and the only business with which he's involved. So I never think you can surround yourself with too many people that are intelligent. You just have to be careful to make it not confusing for the staff and the employees, you know, how things are going to get done and how the strategy is being set out and communicated. But we ne- we've never had an issue with that. For sure. I know that makes sense. And, and, Talk me through kind of the board dynamic. How are you finding it to manage a board for the first time yourself? Yeah, so in the Dutch regulated payments environment, you have what's called a two-tier board system. So mm-hmm. and we have a supervisory board. So it's a bit, it's more hands-on than the American business model, which is kind of one-tier board system where the CEO can also be the executive chairman of the board. That concept doesn't exist here. We have a chairman and supervisory board. So I'm familiar with that from the past because I worked for another Dutch regulated business, albeit you know an earlier in my career. We also had a Dutch regulated entity in my last company. So it's not a concept that was totally unknown to me. I think, you know, again, we're all navigating the same challenges. So I think our board was trying to help us navigate, and since I've been here, you know, a fundraise all sorts of things around how we manage the, the the pandemic. How do we even manage the regulator during a pandemic when we're all trying to communicate with one another? Corporate governance as the company gets bigger and it takes on more responsibility, you know, grows its market share. And of course, providing an independent perspective, audit and risk, et cetera. So I'm somewhat lucky that our supervisory board was constituted just before I got here. So it's not like it's something around for a long time, but mm-hmm. it wasn't something I had to do in the beginning or I had to have a hand or involvement in. So I would say that's been not super difficult. We have you know two investor board members and three outside members. So the balance feels about right. And uh, I think they've been hugely supportive of me. You know, of course it adds cycle time when you know, people are all new, including board mm-hmm. members. So we had, we did have a period where I think we were all trying to figure out <laughs> how to do the best job for one another, but it works well. No, for sure. Makes sense. And so as you came into the company, what, what are the things you learned about yourself? You know, like what, what leadership aspects did you have to flex or were maybe unexpected? Yeah, I think it's a, it's a good question. I mean, I think obviously... As you get older, you're meant to learn at least a couple of key <laughs> characteristics. So I would say as, as I'm more patient now than I was in my earlier career. You could argue that that might necessarily not serve you well in, in all circumstances, but I think patience and adaptability over the last two years has been a pretty pretty good quality to try mm-hmm. to have as you figure out, okay, well, when do things kind of get back to normal? And I would say it took some time to readjust to being in a smaller business. I joke a little bit like there, I said, there's a bunch of people I need to call in my old company. So I'm sorry I gave you such a hard time because, you know, <laughs> it, it, things kind of actually worked pretty well. And it was uh, <laughs> it was nice to have a person who did X, Y, Z. Right. So, you know, in that sense, I think probably learned a little bit more about my last job than I did about my my current one in terms of just remembering like, OK, as you scale up, you know, you have to think about people still need to wear multiple hats. Not everybody can be a specialist right away. And mm. you, know, you, you need to create time and enough revenue to support 
you know, such specialized functions in some cases, right? Obviously, I came from enterprise, so our customer needs are different. So I have tried to learn as much as I can about what makes customers buy here that is different. Mm. And also, we need to work a lot on simplicity of messaging and uh, the way in which you communicate with a business, a, a typical Molly customer is different than you would talk to a, a Microsoft or a, a Netflix, right? Mm. And so we're a bit more generic in our let's say vertical expertise, but we need to be much more specific in our in our segment expertise. And I mean, this this might be a bit outdated uh, of a question, but how accepting are the Dutch of an American CEO? I mean, you you don't you don't come across as an American. You are very international. I'm still curious. Yeah, I, actually, as fact pattern would have it, I, I don't have a U.S. passport anymore. I have a British passport. Wow. So, wow. Yeah, as I made a decision to settle permanently in Europe, uh, well, what was then Europe? Uh, <laughs> it's now the United Kingdom and Europe. Uh, yeah. yeah, look, I've, I've worked most of my adult life outside the U.S. I had a Dutch boss for 10 years, and this is my second Dutch company, my second time living in Amsterdam. So I think, I, I suppose that's a quite a unique profile for a company like us to have, you know, I would say culturally people speak a lot about the, the Dutch straight talking directness or, you know, rudeness, depending on who you ask. Like I actually <laughs> find that quite useful in a business context. You know, sometimes I struggled working in the UK where people really occasionally would talk you around in circles and, uh, you know, weren't, weren't experts at making the point uh, while they tried to be nuanced sometimes. So look, I think, I, so far, I feel very accepted. We're also an international company. I mean, we're based in Amsterdam, so we have a number of different nationalities working for us, as you'll see in our soon-to-be kind of relaunched career site. It's a pretty diverse group. So, you know, we'd like to think our, of ourselves as the Dutch market leader for SMB online. But in reality, we need to think and act already like at minimum a Europe-wide business and probably very soon, if not already, you know, like a, like a global company. Makes, makes sense. And how, how do you continue to learn? I mean, I'm sure it's a hugely dynamic job. I, I think you went to Harvard, got an MBA, and you, you went to different places. Like, how do you continue to learn at this point? It's not very difficult. I mean, first, first of all, if you ever catch yourself saying, I'm not learning anything, you know, you, you either need a whack upside the head or you just you should retire. It's not difficult in our industry because of how fast the industry moves. It's impossible mm. to keep up with the trends. It's impossible to be on every trend. It's impossible to follow all the money that's been invested in this space. Mm. So in that sense, you learn all the time. I would say, you know, I, I'm one of these guys who's in the office most days. Uh, I, I do a lot of walk around. You can learn a lot just by watching people work and talking to them and what are you up to and having random coffees with people. We have a random coffee Slack channel that pairs up two people every Monday. And through those, you know, you, you get a lot of interesting insight and to what drives people. We have a pretty open and transparent culture too. So I get a lot of questions and pings and stuff like that. Again, that's, that's a form of lear learning. We survey our employees that helps me learn. You know, I always tell anybody who enters the payments industry for the first time, you should expect to take three to four years to be described as what I would call good, you know, or knowledgeable. It's really the curve is that long. Um, Why is that? It's, it's a specialist industry with its own terminology. Again, it moves in front of you as you're trying to learn it and understand it. It's still very difficult to, to 
be exposed to it. I mean, you, you can't major in payments at university or something. I mean, actually, I think a couple couple of universities have tried to roll stuff out or content out specific to e-commerce. But, you know, business schools and other things are still pretty old economy focused, if I'm honest. They absolutely but, are, yeah. Yeah, so, you know, again, it's just a shift and mindset shift for most people. It also takes a long time to develop and deploy something meaningful here. Mm. So, you know, some of the best, most effective features... I don't know what the total incubation time for Apple Pay was, but somebody didn't, you know, some engineer did not think that up on a Friday and ship mm. it, you know, the following Thursday. It was like, you know, probably a two to three year journey at minimum. Mm, for sure. And, for that, sure. you know, in that sense, I always say like, until you've really cycled through one of those journeys in a payments company, it's hard, it's hard for you to say you've really truly learned something because you've not push the full set of outcomes all the way through the sales cycle that happens after that. And then the aftercare and then, when does it get to a certain level of maturity? So, you know, in, in essence, I feel like I learn something every day, particularly if you account for the fact that every company is different. I'm in a different segment than the one that I was in before. Mm-hmm. And since 2009 or whatever, it's just sort of 12 years of bull market. You know, that can, it can open your eyes when you're trying to figure out how to find growth when growth does not fall on your head. For sure. For sure. Very different dynamic today. And I mean, if you fast forward by 20 years, you're a slightly unfair question, but like, what, what are kind of the big things that are shaping payments? Would it be as localized then or what are the trends? Yeah, look, that's, it's a very good question. And I always answer it the same way. You know, if, if I knew we'd be doing this via satellite from my boat, you know, in, <laughs> in the Mediterranean, like, you know, you really can trade on this type of knowledge, right? Because just in effect predicting, you know, where financial services will be. And that's a monstrous category because they are effectively kind of growing together. I I see a couple of themes that I'm reasonably confident on. One is that the terminal business or their traditional business of taking physical payments will be, you know, severely disrupted to kind of completely turned over in the next 20 year cycle. I mean, the thinking that you would need some sort of super complex heavyweight you know, infrastructure driven terminals and on landline type mm. stuff to take physical payments. I, I just can't see that in 20 years time. And, you know, most people think it will be, you know, this or something similar, lower cost software mm. only, dis- almost disposable hardware, you know, very lightweight, very configurable with all the, you know, security and things that get people heartburn about getting there too quickly right now. I think that's one. Two is, you kind of have to see something like an end to the the dominance of card payments or card networks. I mean, Visa, Mastercard have built phenomenal franchises. I mean, this is just a juggernaut of a business. I mean, mm-hmm. it, it's every it's everywhere. It's like the only thing I own that works everywhere almost is a is a badged mm-hmm. credit card or debit card. That's uh, just in just about every country in the world. You can just put in a cash machine of nothing else and take out money. I mean, this, mm. for, for for payments to get there has been a very long journey, but you, I think you're starting to see over the last few years, the, the very first indications that the pure bank rails and open banking type technology or more closed loop type technology and wallet, wallet-based technology linked to bank accounts or, uh, or even kind of peer-to-peer transfers that may or may not go over traditional bank rails. These, these are just going to compound at a rate that if you aggregate it over 20 years, it's going to mean mm. meaningful share shift. 
it's like it grows a thousand percent now, but it goes from you know here to here. But the <laughs> compounding effect is 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 relentless, mm. and I, I see outsized compounding for bank to bank, account to account, open banking, payment infrastructure over the next twenty years. Now you could argue that by virtue of having acquired open banking tech companies, that Visa and Mastercard may just look different and may it still may still be two companies, you know, and that have two divisions each, one called card and one called bank. But mm. I just do think from a consumer preference perspective, people will eventually get on to tech technology and they'll probably stay there. Yeah. And then maybe the last one, although you know we all read the news, it I'd like to think that there was a pretty relentless march towards globalization. And you could argue the pendulum is potentially looking mm-hmm. a little different today. But again, over 20 years, if I get to look back 20 years, it gets a little bit more borderless. Mm-hmm. You know, I think there's a few more trade and, and shipping agreements you know, that make it a little simpler to get a product, even from the US over to Europe that you order online. And you'd like to think that there's still some barriers to fall that are that are going to be good for e-commerce more broadly and you know drive more more payment activity there's loads of stuff i would like to buy from everywhere i've ever lived but you know the landed cost of getting it here or a company's ability to send it to me without you mm-hmm. know literally bending over backwards and on both knees it's it's still really difficult right? well i mean you know you 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 look at the UK and since Brexit, even then, you ship something to Amsterdam and your cousin in Amsterdam then has to pay tax on it all of a sudden. And I mean, it's unbelievable. But, but yeah, I mean, it's a short-term glitch. Yeah, I've got a, f- a friend who started a, a, an online business in the US. They make great barbecue grills. You know, I was one of his early customers. He sent me a gift package the other day. I got a bill from FedEx for VAT for 89 euros. And of course, I'm not going to go back to this it guy. It sucks. Yeah, it sucks. You add that to my gift. So, you know, <laughs> took it on the chin, but it, 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 it gets to you, right? You think surely someone's going to, uh, yeah. going to figure this out. Yeah, for sure. No, that's painful. And so what, you know, let's say in 10 years, 20 years, Molly, hugely successful. You've accomplished everything as you dreamed. What, what's next on a personal level? What's the dream? Is it the boat and the satellite phone or is it, I don't know, sitting on boards or doing yeah. philanthropy or? I don't know. I the, I always answer this question the same way too, which is the more plans I've made for my life, the, the more I've been able to guarantee that it will turn out slightly differently, you know, <laughs> meaningfully differently. You know, I never set out to have the current construction 10, 15 years ago. So I would just say I would be open to it. You know, I've two young children. So in, in 10 years time, I think one will be 17 and one will be 14. So we'll be on the, you know, on the verge, I suppose, of being empty nesters or no plans at all. Right. I mean, I, like I find business fascinating. I find investing fascinating. Picking winners is always, is always fun. Uh, you meet lots of interesting people in the fintech space. I'm assuming in some capacity that, some all of the people that you know that i know will be doing interesting stuff so yeah it's that'll be whatever interests me and, and i don't know where we're going to live if i knew where we we're going to live you know i'd try to get my real estate now before uh it's all gone but uh smart point yeah. <laughs> yeah we'll see right part of the fun is in not knowing for sure for sure yeah serendipity and yeah no, it's fun but what, what do you do to unwind i mean you have the kids life is intense what, what do you do for fun yeah, I, a mixture of things. It sort of shifted around over the years a little bit as well. So I, I do get my exercise in. I think I find that you know physical health and mental health are pretty joined up. 
you know, it's it's good to spend time as a family around Amsterdam, particularly when you get the summer weather, you get really long days. So I'm uh, there in two weeks. I can't wait. I'm already yeah, excited. Great city, you know, very accessible. Try to get out on, on the boat when the weather's nice. It's great to see a city like this from the water. Still travel, you know, as a family. Probably the biggest relaxation activity for me. I, I like to be in high altitude, kind of re remote areas. So uh, from my time in Geneva, we we really like parts of Switzerland, even especially in the summer too, you know, to escape the heat a little bit. So I, I find that environment, fresh air, no Wi-Fi for five minutes, maybe. Uh, it's, <laughs> it's good for the body, you know, and... For and sure. then there's, you know, there, there's always food and wine, right? That's uh, that you can absolutely find almost yeah. Anywhere. Brilliant. Well, thank you so much for your time. It's been really fun getting to know you. Thank you. 